What are you? Some kind of nerd? Some kind of nerdy intellectual? All jerking it to your manga? You some kind of freak? Some kind of weirdo? Out there living your life? Not hurting anyone? Living the kind of existence I could only dream of if it weren't for my insecurities, my obligations, my crushing responsibilities? Exploring your interests to their fullest? Why, why, can't, why can't you be more like me? With it. Hip. Couple of hit-and-run fatalities that haunt me in the dead of night. Nothing to live for, nothing to die for. Huh? How about that, nerd? Maybe join my church. You know, the one with the snakes? <laughs> don't, don't make me eat you. I'll eat you alive. How, 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 much, how much can you lift, nerd? Can you even lift the pain off my soul? Can you lift the force of society, crushing my skull like a steam press? Can you lift the weight of the disappointment in my children's eyes when they find their father drunk on the kitchen floor again, naked, painted in barbecue sauce, crying, hugging a bag of frozen tater tots? Huh? Nerdlinger? Can you do that? Huh? Please? <laughs> if not you can at least listen to the post-culture podcast Our app has killed again. We thought that this problem was resolved. Whatever bug in the code that makes it lash out like this, delicately removed and banished. Our programmers are flabbergasted, our public relations staff shaking in fear, our marketing team furious that they're... Our app will no longer murder you in your sleep campaign is now in ruins. We must come to an executive decision on this matter. Plot a course of action that will ease consumer minds, as well as the minds of investors, so that the venture capital that our small startup so depends on will continue to flow while we work to monetize the potential of our app. The first time our app killed, it obviously was a shock. It should be clear, we, we didn't design it to do this. We weren't even sure it was possible for an app to kill? To murder a presumably innocent consumer in cold blood? Yet not only did it do this, but it recorded it for all to see, loading the damning bloody evidence of its crimes onto our servers. 
as if it were proud of what it had done to this end user of our products. Bragging to us its creators was bad enough, but the evidence also found its way into the swirling viral sea of social media. It was a nightmare, an app that killed. We were sorry. We worked to ease consumer concerns, assured everyone that safety was our top priority. It took months of work to get back into the public's good graces, to make it clear it was a freak occurrence. And after all that work, finally, we had seemed to be on the road to recovery, a light at the end of, of that tunnel. And now our app has killed again. Once again, it has bragged to us about it. Possibly mocking our efforts to curb its bloodlust. Fortunately, at least, we have managed to contain the evidence of this relapse on our own servers, away from prying eyes. Containment has been successful thus far, but what to do about the underlying cause is beyond us. Our programmers are going through the code line by line, but they they aren't even sure what they're looking for. Could it be possible the app is acting beyond its programming? It would be a phenomenal, an earth-shattering achievement if it, if it weren't for the fact that our app has killed again. Our app has killed again. This is now happening with a depressing regularity. We have managed to cover up this new assault on our user base with the same efficiency as the last time, but the danger to our growing startup cannot be allowed to continue. Delicate lies and careful omissions of the truth have kept our investors ignorant of this ongoing series of crimes, and capital is now flowing freely to us. The contrast between our accomplishments and what we are trying to hide is causing us stress. No amount of workplace foosball or gentle massage therapy and ergonomic chairs can fully mitigate. And we are at a loss. Can we start from scratch? The same problem might arise. Is the app inherently evil? Misguided? Should we tear down all we've created over a few unfortunate deaths we could not have possibly prevented? We can't answer this question to our satisfaction. Our app has killed again. We are its accomplices now. Unwillingly, certainly, but unquestionably. Our conclusion is simply that this has gone too far. Moral action holds no reward. 
we'd be punished regardless. And if not our app, it would be another. And we look on it with something like disgusted pride as we see it learn and grow, gain and almost a grace in its brutality. We cover its tracks, make sure nothing can be traced back to the app or us. We run reports on this aspect of our app's activities, highly detailed and highly secret, to make sure nothing is missed, no clue left to anyone. Every now and then, one of our killings is reported in the news, but they are in such disparate locations that no one has ever tied them together. The exchange in this bargain for our complicity with our app's activities is the phenomenal success of our company. Using the, the app that once killed gives people a comfortable thrill, a safe feeling in the knowledge that the problem has been resolved. Our marketing team is justifiably proud of this change in public perception. Our app brings us good fortune. In exchange, we see that report of what it does at night while we sleep fitfully in our townhouses. In exchange, we see the trust that we've rebuilt in our user base brutally and bloodily taken advantage of. Our app has killed again. And frankly, we accept that. This is the dawn of a new technological age, and we will not be left behind by this revolution. Outmoded concepts of moral behavior should not restrain the technological progress that will better benefit humanity in the long run. Why fear when, when our app kills? We should celebrate it, embrace it, endeavor to understand the wisdom of it and of technology's plan for us. It sees so much more than we do, aggregates more data, thinks more precisely. Who are we to question it, to question its actions, even if they offend the primitive notions of a less connected age? We approach this, this glorious singularity with open arms and bated breaths as our, our app has killed again and again and again and again.
After several years spent bathing in a white noise of ink, Jason could at last hear the narrator's voice. The world melted into view, and he could see the walls of the gas station that surrounded him, the shelves lined with rainbows of high fructose nothingness, and the broken roads of a desert town just outside the window. His nameless manager leaned over and witnessed to him. Check out that guy on pump three. Outside, a motorcycle planted all four of its chrome legs firmly against the pavement. The drifter who was riding it slid down from the saddle, then pet its handlebars approvingly with gnarled hands. He was a handsome mess to behold, soaked in sweat, dust, and a spattering of dried blood. His letterman's jacket bore the insignia of some unknown high school, the Golden River Gladiators. Jason took one look at him and knew exactly what was going on. This stranger had to be the protagonist. For that short moment in time, he had a name, a body, and a voice, and it was all because this singular figure was within eyeshot. All eyes were on him. He had an idea of what would happen next. The drifter was only passing through, and this was just one stop on a much longer journey through several bloody chapters of Nevadan highways. The darkness would swallow Jason again shortly after the narrator mentioned his name for the last time. The story passing through his mind would grow muffled, then silent, and then the universe would collapse a few hours later. The whole damn town of Elko, Nevada would disappear into a pitch-black sandstorm, along with everyone he knew and loved. The wanderer threw the station's door open. He barged straight up to the till, not bothering to take off his sunglasses, and slammed a $10 coin bearing Eleanor Roosevelt's face onto the counter. Put this on pump four and hurry. I gotta make Salt Lake by nightfall. Yeah, sure. Jason didn't bother to correct his esteemed customer. He simply put the money on pump three instead, a gesture of goodwill that he would never be thanked for. That's when everything changed. Jason J. Hargrove, associate manager, bowling enthusiast, and valued cardholder, really took that last piece to heart. A gesture of goodwill that he would never be thanked for. The narrator's voice had singled out a painful truth, that this was all that he would be remembered for, unless he did something right then and there. As the drifter turned to exit, Jason pulled a 9mm pistol out from under the counter, aimed, and pulled the trigger three furious times. 
The glass of the window beyond spilled apart, and a quarter ounce of lead found its way through the nomad's skull, causing him to crumble to the floor. It took Jason a few seconds to realize what he had done, but at the moment of reckoning, he let out a terrible yell. He'd done it. He'd spat in the face of God. He didn't care that two highway patrolmen were 15 yards away buying matching Dr. Peppers, or that his manager was howling in shock and crumbled against a wall of overpriced cigarettes. He heard someone yell for him to freeze and drop his weapon, but all he could manage to do was laugh. Perhaps in the end, this was his story after all. It was during the chaos that followed that I stole the motorcycle on Pump 3 and galloped eastward. Nobody present at the scene witnessed me arriving or leaving, in large part due to the narrator's discretion. I didn't stick around to find out what happened to Jason, but I imagine hearing these words wipe that smile off his face. Our fraternity has a long-standing bond to its members and deep roots in the local community. It's a good frat, full of brotherly love and academic commitment. And we know how to party. Oh man, do we ever know how to party. Our keggers? Legendary. But we can't say there hasn't been a few crazed hijinks, also some unexplained disappearances, and church desecrations. But it's all in good fun. You know, we try to have a good time. But if there's one thorn in our side, one drop of rain on our good time parade, it's the snooty Dean. You know the type. Square. Stuck up. Always wanting to put an end to the party. Always calling the National Guard because the city is ablaze. He's the cat turd in our party time salad. The kill switch on our joy machine. Just because a bunch of skeletons were found in our basement... Or because what we did to the homecoming parade will leave a bleeding wound on this community for generations. He's got this beef with us, saying we're irresponsible and dangerous and not really a frat and something something suicide cult. Such a bummer. And if he weren't enough, it was a snooty frat. They're like our opposites, you know, all rich responsible and probably homosexual. And their parties are these sort of light suit and tie affairs. No togas. No stolen goats or kidnapped policemen used as human shields. They conspire against us, the snooty dean and the snooty frat. They want to shut us down. Stop the party. Stop the good times. Stop the screaming. It's because they're jealous. 
jealous of our virility, our success with the ladies, our clearly large and engorged members twinkling in the moonlight. They revoked our charter by saying we never really had one, because once again we're not a frat. They ruined our chances to pass our midterms by making it so we couldn't cheat properly, by firing guns at us until we left campus. They even tried to close our frat, though the three-block stretch of urban wasteland strewn with landmines that only the hopelessly psychotic or those who loved to party would dare cross, kept the forces of conformity and complacency at bay. We'll have our revenge, though. We've got something special planned for graduation. We built a neutron bomb. Put it together out of keggers and old cars, even shoved a nerd in there to make sure it works right. Man... We can just imagine the looks on their faces when that baby goes off. Maybe then they'll loosen up and learn how to party. My bedtime routine. I tried to get all my chores done first. I can't seem to sleep properly with things undone. Dishes washed, laundry folded, witch traps baited, three hazel dots placed carefully by the front door. Nothing left to nag me as I drift off to sleep. Then I generally take a shower. I know a lot of people prefer to shower in the morning, but I find a shower just before bed relaxes my muscles and really sets me in the mood for sleep. Now, my showers are pretty basic. I strip, detach my genitalia for its nightly boiling, and spray hot water directly into my eyes while screaming for about two minutes. I try not to go longer than that, as much as I might like to, because wasting water is a sin. Soap is somehow involved in my shower, though honestly, I have never figured out how. A little bit seems to be used each time, but frankly, I don't even know how the stuff works. Oh well, whatever keeps the devil away. Next, I brush my teeth collection, which I like to keep in a museum-quality state at all times. Then I go over my face with tweezers, forming my unibrow into a line from the scriptures. Then of course, as most people do, I unscrew the top of my skull like a plastic Coke bottle, remove my brain, and flush it down the toilet, so tomorrow's brain can grow in its place. Then, I put on my pajamas, handcuff myself to a loaded pistol, and read the Bible while I get cozy under the covers. When I feel ready to drift off, I handcuff the Bible to my other hand, snort exactly three lines of cocaine, and set the bed on fire. 
It's all sweet dreams from there on out. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Post Culture Podcast. Nerd Patrol at the Gates of Hell. Music in this episode was provided by The Fourth Shift. You can follow them at fourthshift.bandcamp.com. He also performed the Nerds piece at the top of the podcast. Other music was also provided by Umbridge Hill. You can follow them at umbridgehill.bandcamp.com. You also heard from Sewing Machines. You can follow them at sewingmachines.bandcamp.com. Additional music was provided by Kurt Veal, Ross Cersei Othea, Arthur Fields, and Paul Whiteman. The Reliable Narrators piece was written and performed by Ewell Armashek. You can follow him on Twitter at T-H-E-P-A-T-A-N-O-I-A-C. You can also follow his fiction at www.northofreality.com. Next week, we'll be donating some kidneys to whomever wins this game of Catch the Kidneys. Stay tuned.